Good morning and happy Sabbath. Do I need to ask how your week has been? Maybe I don't. I can tell you that mine was one of the most difficult times in ministry. Before I start my sermon, I would like to invite you to uh, look at these slides. Do we have them? All right. Take a look at them. Happy Sabbath, Tommy and Christy, Isaac, Asamoa family, James, Christy. Happy Sabbath, Bam family, Brian. Yeah, we miss you. Happy Sabbath. Benitez family, happy Sabbath, Miss Lola, happy Sabbath, Joe, Karen, George, Carson. By the way, I'm just using the names of those that have pictures, because you probably can zoom in and see the pictures. Happy Sabbath, Tom and Betty, happy, happy Sabbath, India, happy Sabbath, Cooper family, happy Sabbath, Del Sol, Jennifer, and her family. Happy Sabbath, the Dix family. Happy Sabbath, Joy. Happy Sabbath, Rick and Rita. Happy Sabbath, Noor, Noreen and George. Happy Sabbath, the Jose f- or Edwin's family. I don't know how to say it well. Shine is here. Happy Sabbath, the Fajardos. Happy Sabbath, the France family. Happy Sabbath, John. Happy Sabbath, the Grace family. Happy Sabbath, Arden and Barbara. Happy Sabbath, Lee and Sandy. Happy Sabbath, Annette. Happy Sabbath, the Hussars. Happy Sabbath, Mia and Melanie. Happy Sabbath, the Jernigans. Happy Sabbath, the Karikari family. Happy Sabbath, the Cars. Happy Sabbath, Melvin and Martina. Happy Sabbath, Martin and Babby. And Abby, she's not in the picture. Happy Sabbath, the Long family. Happy Sabbath, the Matherly family. Happy Sabbath, Yvonne, she's here. Happy Sabbath, the Monroes, Rick and Rita. Happy Sabbath, uh, Tony and Deborah. Happy Sabbath, Roy and Naomi. Happy Sabbath, Ojong. Well, I know him, Ellie and Beth. Happy Sabbath, the Ohms, they're here. Happy Sabbath. Ben, happy Sabbath, Selfie. Happy Sabbath, David and Marianne. Happy Sabbath, buddy. Hmm. That's sad. Never thought that we're going to lose. Someone who did so much for the Lord and for the ministry of this church. Brenda Reynolds. Yeah, you look good there, Brenda. Happy Sabbath, Hannah, if you're watching us. Happy Sabbath, the Robert, Steve, and Chris is here. Happy Sabbath, Pat. Happy Sabbath, Genevieve and the rest of the Coopers family. And happy Sabbath, that guy, I don't know who he is, but yeah, he's here. (laughs) Happy Sabbath, the Sykes family. Happy Sabbath, Randy. Happy Sabbath, Marianne. Happy Sabbath, the Stilgers. Happy Sabbath, the Stoms. 
Happy Sabbath, Thomases. Happy Sabbath, Mary, MJ. Happy Sabbath, Jocelyn. Happy Sabbath, Curtis. Happy Sabbath, Elaine and Alan. Happy Sabbath, Heather and Drew. Happy Sabbath, Linda and Richard. Happy Sabbath, the Woodroofs. Happy Sabbath, the Wrights. And happy Sabbath, Adelaide. My friends, welcome to the Middletown Seventh-day Adventist Church. Did I just say church? I don't know if you noticed, today I didn't have the picture of the church there. But I had all the pictures I could gather for our members, for our friends. So, if you're watching, what is church? One to three words. I know it's delayed about by 20 seconds. What is church? If you type in your answer in your comment, in your comments, obviously if you're watching live, what is church? Is church a building? Church a place? Is church a religious denomination? What is church? Well, let me make it a little easier. I'm going to make it into a multiple answer question. Is church a body, a building, a bride, or all of the above? Let's see if there are any answers coming in. Well, if you tune in to our YouTube channel, our church YouTube channel, Milltown Seventh Adventist Church, for the next few Sabbaths, I guarantee you that you will have the right answer as we study together this topic. What is church? Let's look at some definitions that we all find on the internet. That's our YouTube channel, so please join us for the following Sabbaths. Google defines church in three ways. Number one, as a noun, defines church like a building used for public Christian worships, place of worship, house of worship, house of God, cathedral, abbey, chapel, basilica, basically a building. Second definition of church in Google you'll find is a denomination, an ecclesial community, a creed, faith, institutionalized religion. And number three meaning or definition they have is a verb. Church is a verb. Are you churched or unchurched? Meaning, do you belong to a religious affiliation or not? That's Google. Merriam-Webster Dictionary Church is a building that is used for Christian religious services. See how people look at it? Second meaning in we uh, Merriam-Webster says is a religious services, a service held in a church or a particular Christian group. Whoa, okay. And the fourth definition in Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, a body or organization of religious believers. 
Aha. They begin to get it. Question is, how do we as Seventh-day Adventists define church? We have a book called Seventh-day Adventists Believe. It's an exposition of the biblical truths as we understand and wholeheartedly believe them as a church denomination. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist and don't have this book, I recommend that you get one. You can simply order it from Advent Source. You can go to adventsource.org and you order it. It's a must book to have for everyone. Seventh-day Adventists believe. Well, in Seventh-day Adventists believe, page 163, the church is defined as the community of believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So, how do Seventh-day Adventists define church as a community of believers? And he goes on to say the church derives its authority from Christ. The church is God's family. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride from whom Christ died. What is church? A man was answering questions for a national poll, and when he was asked what is his preferred church, he responded, the red brick one. See how people see it? Jesus is the first one to mention church in the Bible. There is no such reference in the Old Testament. The story is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Jesus uh, comes with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples... Matthew 16, verse 13, he says, Who do you think, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they expressed what was said in the places where they have already been. And they said, they replied to Jesus, Some say, you're John the Baptist. Some, Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And, and the prophets. And now Jesus kind of corners them. In verse 15, But who do you think I am? And none of them seem to have the courage to express his mind. Perhaps due to the unbelief, maybe due to doubt or lack of conviction. But Peter, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whoa! See, that's why I love Peter. I love his personality. I love Peter. 
He said, you are the son, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, it's easy for us 2,000 years past Jesus' time. It's hard for us having read his story, having read the Gospels. It's easy for us to declare who Jesus is. Peter didn't have what we have today. He only had the Old Testament writings and in there the prophecies referring to Jesus as Messiah. And because he believed Jesus was the incarnated Messiah, he declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow! And next verse is the peak of this paragraph of this story. Verse 17. As the result of the faith and confidence Peter demonstrated, Jesus now is addressing Peter directly and with confidence. And Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus is telling Peter is, Simon, son of Jonah, you know this and you express this truth because you have been inspired. It's not from you. You've been inspired from above. Verse 18 and I will also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? My church. On this rock, on this foundation, on this testimony, the testimony that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, on this truth. I will build my church. First time the word church is used in the Bible, Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus was the first to introduce us to the concept of church. And when he did so, he used the word ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is a composite Greek word. And just like we have in English other composite words, ecclesia combines two words into one. It uses the word ek first, and it means out from and to, and a form of kaleo, which is a, ver a verb meaning to call. So, ecclesia literally is outcalled. Well, that's not correct English, so we would say called out. Called out from the world to God, and you become the church. So whenever you see the word church 
in the New Testament, most of the time the word, the word ecclesia is used. In fact, according to the New Testament Greek lexicon, ecclesia is used 114 times in the New Testament. And it's translated with assembly three times, with church, singular, 74 times, churches, the plural uh, form, 35 times, and congregation, two times. So now with this definition in mind, coming straight out of the original writing of the gospel where Ecclesia represents those who are called out from the world to God. That's what church stands for in the New Testament. Called out from the world to God. Let's read a few Bible verses that use the word Ecclesia and see if it makes any difference for you. Jesus, again, is using this word in Matthew 18, out of all places, our favorite chapter when we deal with church or conflict between people, right? Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he fears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it. Jesus did not say, Jesus did not say him. Tell it. Tell the case to the church, not to everyone, but only to those who are called out of the world to God, because they know how to deal with this. And then Jesus said, in case of no cooperation, but if he refuses even to hear, to hear who? The church. Let him be to you like a hidden and a tax collector. In other words, he or she chose to step away from those who are called out from the world to God. And you start the process of evangelism all over. As if they were tax collectors, secular people. They need to hear the gospel again and respond to the call in order to be called out again. See, I'm not the one calling, not Pastor Marius. Jesus is. God is. All I do is to facilitate that call, to proclaim the gospel, and it's the individual's responsibility to respond to God's call and become part of those that are called. I hope it makes sense to you. Then Ecclesia, again, is used in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. In fact, that passage begins with verse 40. In my Andrew Study Bible, that paragraph has a subtitle, and the subtitle says, The Vital Church Grows. So verse 40, And with many other words, he, Peter, testified and exhorted them. See, Peter did his part. Now it was the Lord's part 
he was going to honor Peter's efforts, right? So last part of verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to ecclesia, to those who were called out from the world and to God, and they were saved. Now, in the next book of the Bible, the letter to the Romans, Apostle Paul recommends someone to the church, and the reading goes like this, Romans 16, verse 1. He says, I recommend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of Ecclesia, of the church, those who are called out from the world to God. And likewise, in verse 5, likewise, greet the who? The Ecclesia, those who are called out from the world to God, that is in their house. So obviously, here we see that church is not a building. It wasn't talking about a building in his house. He was talking about people in their house. I hope you grasp the biblical teaching that church is nothing else but a group of those who are called out of the world, from the world. They're called out of the dark, sinful, corrupt, confused world. They are called to worship God and serve people on behalf of God Almighty. That's what church is all about. Now, the Bible uses different metaphors to teach principles about the church, about those who are called out from the world to God. And the Bible describes the church as a human body, as a building or temple, as a bride, as Jerusalem above, as family, as the pillar and foundation of truth, and as an army. But I think they're all covered under the three B's, church as the body, the building, and the bride. And we'll study these metaphors beginning today and for the rest of this month. The church as the body of Christ. The church as the building of God. The church as the bride of Christ. And somewhere in, be- in between, by the way, this month we will celebrate our fathers for the Father's Day weekend. The church as the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a common yet complex term used in the Christian faith. We use that a lot. This metaphor of the body stresses the unity of the church and the functional relationship of each member to the whole. The body of Christ, just like the human body, is comprised of many parts. There are limbs and organs and various members that, when left alone, are useless. But when you assemble them, when you, make, when you assemble them together, it makes up the entire body. Apostle Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. A couple of chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 
verses 16 and 17, Paul introduced the human body as an illustration of this interrelationship of the members of Christ's body, the church. Paul, in the context of the Lord's Supper, said, is not the bread, is not the bread which we break sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And from that point on, through the end of chapter 12, Paul refers to the human body to describe the church. And he uses that analogy 16 times. It's an important image he wants us to grasp. I was thinking about the human body this week. It's the most amazing creation work of God out of His all, whole creation. The human body is marvelously complex, yet it is unified with excellent harmony and interrelatedness. It is one unit. We can't subdivide the body into several bodies. If the body is divided, the part that is cut off ceases to function and dies. And the rest of the body loses some of its functions and effectiveness. If you, if you cut off your leg or your arm, it ceases to exist and the body suffers. Church, the equivalent of human body. That means if something is true for the body, for the human body, is also true for the church. Consider the development of human embryo, the development of human body, and parallel that with a church planting. I don't know if you thought about this. I thought about that. It's an amazing parallel. Let's take a look at it together. Um, In a human body, first you have the conception and a ball of cells called blastocyst. In a church context, the church planting uh, 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 process, if the church is healthy, if a church is healthy, at some point there will be the idea of multiplying and plant a new healthy church. In a human body, in the development of the embryo, then you have the developments of nerves and connection of cells forming as a ball. In a church context, if the church is healthy, a strong desire to plant a new church is born. In the development of the embryo, the, then the first organ develops, the heart starts beating. In a church planting process, a group of individuals who will be the motivator and spiritual leaders that pump the enthusiasm and passion of the church. In the human body, facial features are beginning to form. 
in a church context, a spiritual character is formed for the forming new church. And then for that little embryo, it had a heart, then facial expressions, and then the little arms and legs are growing. Arms and legs. In a church context, arms and legs are people who will be doing the work and move the church forward. By the way, in case you wondered, how many hands does a healthy human body have? Only two, right? So we're not all hands. We don't have hands all over, right? It's a small percentage. Same thing in the church context. A small percentage, small number of people are doing the work of the church. It's always been that way. And it's interesting that God allowed this metaphor to be, to inspire Paul to write it. And then the, the, in, the, in, in, in the mother's womb, the, the eyes are formed and the embryo begins to look more like a human. In a church context, in a church planting context, people with vision see the picture of the new church and what was just an idea now becomes more and more of a reality. And then in the mother's womb, gradually the, the little baby grows, all the organs are formed, and the baby is born. In a church context, following the process of spiritual development and legal formalities, a new church plant is born. Can you see the parallel? If it's true for the body, it is true for the church. And then their organs like kidneys and lungs and they're all kept in one body by this epiderma, we call it, the skin. You know, we need skin people, not skinny people. I mean skin people. They are the ones who protect the church from unwanted doctrines and ideas. Skin protects the body. Skin also keeps the body as, the body as one unit. They always work to maintain and keep the church in one piece, the skin people. They are also very sensitive to unpleasant and unhealthy situations, and they immediately alert the, bra the brain, the head. And in case unhealthy things go in the body, there are kidneys that help remove the waste from the blood and from the body. There are people too. These are people in the church that are tough and whose job is to alert and remove from the body, all unwanted impurities and keep the church healthy. And then there are the lungs. They bring in fresh oxygen, <sighs> right? While removing carbon dioxide from the, from the blood. Without oxygen, our brain cannot function properly. The lung people in the church are those whose job is to make us all receptive to the brain's commands and make sure they provide that environment. As I said earlier, this analogy of the church being the body of Christ is not as simple as we would like it to be. It is as complex as our human body is, but it is true. God inspired Apostle Paul 
to write it, and it applies to us as the body of Christ. Have you ever thought that Christ is part of the church, of our church? Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. Do you remember when you put your face above a headless frame painted to represent a muscle man or a clown or even a bathing beauty? Or Many of us had pictures like that. And the photos are humorous because the head doesn't fit the body. If we could picture Christ as the head of our local body of believers, would the world laugh at the misfit? Or would they stand in awe of the body so closely related to a divine head? Think about this. How is Christ the head of the church these days? Is that fitting image or is that a misfit? Now, there is unity and diversity in the body of Christ. And Paul is going to illustrate this unique examination of the human body in verses 14 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> this is rather a silly section of the scripture. I know you probably read it many times. And the humor here is a bit goofy. Paul is, has, he has talking hands and feet and eyes in conversation with each other. I've never considered Apostle Paul being a comedian writer in the Bible. I can't think of any other writing of Paul being funny. He's rather an intense and passionate and, and great scholar. But comedian? Paul? Comedian? However, there is some humor here. We have a talking foot and ear who feels jealous, jealously inferior to a hand and an eye. And they threaten to secede from the body leaving it unable to walk or hear. Then we have an eye and a head who feel arrogantly superior to the hand and the foot. They think they can get along just fine without them. I found out that uh, maybe the Apostle Paul came across this Roman writer's story. Uh, a Roman writer in the 5th century BC by the name of Livy, he wrote a story where the body got really frustrated with the stomach because it all, all it did was lie there and accept all the food that they gave it. It's called the stomach and the body story. And it goes like this. Back when all the parts of the human body did not function in unison as it is today, each member of the body has its own opinion and was able to speak. The various members were offended that every, everything won by their hard work and diligent efforts was delivered to the stomach. While he simply sat there in their midst, fully at ease 
and just enjoying the delights that were brought to him. Finally, the members of the body revolted. The hands refused to bring food to the mouth. The mouth refused to take in any food. And the teeth refused to chew anything. In their angry effort to subdue the stomach with hunger, the whole body completely wasted away. Well, that's how Laura Gibbs, Dr. Laura Gibbs translated it in her book, Aesop's Fables. They went on strike against the stomach and refused to put food in it. Did it work? No, the whole body died. It does not work that way. Did you know there are four main bones in every organization, including the church and in the community? The wishbones, wishing everybody would do something about the problem. Then you have the jawbones, doing all the talking, but very little else. And then you have the knucklebones, those who knock everything. And then the backbones, those who carry the brunt of the load and do most of the work. See, there are two sinful tendencies in those who are called out from the world to God in the church. The problem of feeling inferior and the problem of feeling superior. Let's look at the first problem. Paul talks about feeling inferior. This is one of the reasons some Christians never express their spiritual gifts in ministry. Look at verses 14 to 19. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less of par a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the... And if whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God, who is that? God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? In verses 15 and 16, twice we see the statement, I am not part of the body. The perception that they don't really need me, or I have nothing to, con to, to, uh, to uh, make any contribution. That's a temptation to believe that I really have no gifts, nor abilities, or no responsibilities. This section makes clear that in reality, everybody is needed. And disclaiming that responsibility doesn't remove it. 
See, drawing back from functioning as a part of the body doesn't make us any less a part of the body. Paul says this twice at the end of verse 15 and the end of verse 16. There are no inferior or insignificant members in the body of Christ. You are all needed. Now, beginning in verse 20, Paul is going to address the opposite problem, which is just as ridiculous and dangerous to the health of the body as the first one. It's the problem of feeling superior to those around us. Look at verse 20 to 26. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable on this we bestow more abundant honor. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor that, to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers... All members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. In verse 21, in this paragraph, we see the statement, I have no need of you. It happens twice. It, it occurs twice. The perception is that we don't really need other people. We don't need their input. We don't need their ideas. We don't need them. People that are not like us or look like us because we're so highly or superior. That's pride, independence, arrogance, and an attitude of exclusivity. The reality is that the stronger and the weaker members are all absolutely necessary. As a part of the church... As part of those who are called out from the world to God, what can you, what can I do to enhance the body of Christ these days? The body is a holy entity and is to be respected and treated with complete honor and care. What is my call? What is your call as an active part of the body of Christ these days. Paul said, but God has composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be, what? Should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Talk about the pandemic and how it made us realize that the church is not the building. The focus shifted on the 
people. If church is people, then we need to care for one another. We need to care for one another. Jesus said, by this all know that you are my disciples if you love one another. With everything that is going on in the world, we have members of our church, of our church body, here at Middletown and in other parts of this country, who suffer, who are hurting, who are afraid and scared. And because they're suffering, we should all be suffering with them. My brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to not love each other. We are united in one body with the head being Christ. The challenge this week, the challenge for us from now on is for all of us. And when I say all, I mean all, not just the pastor, the elders, or the ministry leaders. This is an all activity. Uh, Desmond Tutu once said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And Nelson Mandela added, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must or they need to learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. My brothers and sisters, Jesus taught us how to love. This is God's church, is His church. Disciples of Jesus united together in harmony. How do we know we are His disciples? By loving each other. All of us who are members of this body of Christ at Middletown, all of us must connect, reach out, and love those who are suffering. Satan is working really hard to divide. But Jesus said his church united. Even the gates of hell, he said, must not prevail against it. My brothers and sisters, the church is called to be different than the world. The church are those who are called out from the world to God. If we are church, we're not of the world. If we are, if we are church, we're not like the world. We don't think as the world does. We don't act as the world does. We have only one party, by the way, and that party is of Jesus Christ. It is time for the body of Christ to fit the picture and to show the world that we are His disciples. We are called to suffer with those who are suffering and rejoice with those that rejoice. It's true, like Yvonne said, we have an obstacle the coronavirus is upon us. And simply put, here is what you and I need to do. It's a good starting point. Reach out to the hurting. 
listen, then pray. Just listen and pray. It's a good start. If Jesus is our head, we must follow. We must think. We must act as Jesus would do these days. I hope and pray that God will make Middletown a leader and an example of the body of Christ these days. Amen.